Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Samaneri Jayasara. Samaneri Jayasara is a Buddhist nun and spiritual teacher. Her YouTube channel, where she shares lectures, has over 80,000 subscribers. In this episode, we talk about the purpose of meditation, the true nature of emotions, the core teachings of Buddhism, the illusion of boredom, the difference between Buddhism and the Abrahamic religions, the possibility of enlightenment, the cycle of pleasure and pain, and much more. So without further ado, Samaneri Jayasara. Okay, Samaneri Jayasara, thanks so much for coming on my show. You're welcome, Coleman. Nice to meet you. So I've listened to some of your guided meditations on YouTube, which are excellent, and you've built up a community of people that where you teach Buddhist principles and guide people virtually through, through meditations. But other than that, I know very little about you, and I'm, I'm certain most people in my audience don't. So I'm curious how you came to meditation in the first place, and then how you came to become a teacher. Well, first, I should say that I don't kind of put myself out there as a teacher, a spiritual teacher, but it's kind of happened inadvertently by uploading those things on YouTube and then people do start to project a lot of stuff. Having said that, I'm actually trained as a teacher. <laughs> so I've taught for many years prior to becoming a nun. So a teacher is my qualification, but I just want to kind of shy away from thinking that I'm presenting myself as some great spiritual teacher on YouTube or something like that. It's, as you're probably aware, all sorts of strange things happen in the public domain, but I am accepting that role sure. in a kind of a, yeah, mm-hmm. hopefully in a light way, if you know what I mean. But in terms of my own coming to practice. So I'm curious, yeah. so what did you teach before? Yeah, well, I, I taught psychology, counselling. Um, I also was a secondary teacher teaching those subjects and many more social studies and that. But my postgrad studies were in Buddhism and Eastern philosophies and religions and psychotherapy and looking at the interface between those two things. And that was mainly just my own interest because of my practice. I wanted to actually study the Dharma as well in all its myriad forms. So, you know, in, in terms of a long story as to how one comes to meditation and the Dharma, but I think like a lot of people when I was younger, just having that kind of existential crisis where you kind of wake up to the fact that this world is uh, deluded and, you know, focused on all the wrong things. And so I, I guess through the path of recognizing that, that confusion within myself, I started looking around for teachers and teachings and was fortunate enough to come upon it when I was 21, really, or actually earlier than that, because I was starting to read the, the teachings of Krishnamurti and finding that that was answering a lot of questions that weren't being answered at, um, at university, even though, you know, there were interesting things I was learning at university in social studies, but they, for me, they didn't go deep enough. So I kept searching and was able, I guess the, the very process of searching when you're open and you're asking those questions, somehow things come, you know, the right, the right answers can come somehow. So that's how it happened many moons ago. And I've been on the path for a long time, practicing in different capacities and have been, been a nun for the kind of the second time around, but since about four or five years ago again. Hmm. So I'm always curious, the first time someone sits down to meditate, you know, for you, what was the very first time that you sat and did you notice anything happening? Because many people have the experience of sitting down for the first time and just feeling like they sat for 10 minutes and nothing happened. And this whole meditation thing is BS and I'm going to go back to living my life. So I'm curious, do you remember really? what only your give it first 10 minutes. sitting experience was like? <laughs> I think you got to give it yeah, more no, than 10 uh, minutes. I, I think a lot of people, that is true for a lot of people. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You practice yourself, Coleman, obviously. So uh, on and off, uh, I, I can give you a, l- a little bit of my backstory. I always had kind of a passing 
interest in meditation when I was a teenager, maybe 16 mm-hmm. or 17. I would always be curious as to what people were doing with their legs crossed. And I read, I remember reading some Eckhart Tolle books at that time and sort of experimenting with listening to the voice in my head as if it were someone else or as if it were not identical to me. And I remember playing around with that from time to time in a, in a very unstructured way. And then several years later, I went through kind of psychological crisis when my mother passed and I was grieving and suddenly having panic attacks, which I'd, mm-hmm. you know, I'd never had any abnormal level of anxiety until that point. And I, I just, I tried everything and nothing seemed to work. So basically out of desperation, I tried, you know, I remember that I sort of had this interest in meditation and just tried it as a last resort, not expecting it to work, but just out of having exhausted all the options I thought might work. And then found that, it, you know, my physical anxiety actually could disappear or could cease to be a problem if I paid attention to my body and listened to guided meditations, which was absolutely Great. stunning to me when, when I discovered Great. that fact. It was yeah, well, so stunning. Proof, I figured yeah. I have to investigate this. And so I've been to three meditation retreats since then, but that's my basic history. But, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, when, when you first sat down, what your experience was like. Well, it's interesting because you say, you know, when you're reading the Tola book or when things were happening, you were playing around. And I think a lot of us do play around mm-hmm. and because the word meditation is very broad. What does it really mean? I mean, in its essence, it's, it means you start to investigate the nature of the mind. And when I think, you know, when I was young, I had strange experiences. I remember just lying in bed sometimes and, you know, as a young child, could have been eight or nine. And a young child's mind, generally, unless there's a lot going on, a lot of trauma, is pretty empty. And I remember just lying there watching it at night and just watching the thoughts of which there probably weren't that many. And then strange things would happen. You know, the body would disappear. I'd kind of feel myself becoming the whole space. The mind would kind of dissolve into this openness. And this happened many times when I was a child. And the weird thing is I got a little bit scared because it was unusual, but I didn't tell anyone about it because it Mm. made no sense. And I didn't have any idea what was going on. Mm. I think as a child, I didn't think I was going mad or anything, but it was just very strange. And then, so this would happen. And then I just fall naturally into a sleep and probably forget about it the next day. And then I remember as a teenager becoming a bit more conscious of the mind and lying in bed at night going, how do you stop thinking? Let's see if I can stop thinking. So I think that playfulness and that exploration that people do naturally, it is a form of meditation. It's, it's investigating the nature of the mind. And I think the problem is that when we then think that meditation means sitting down in a stiff position, not moving and doing what we think people do, chanting or lighting incense, and then it becomes very unnatural and people can have reactions to that. Or like you said, go in thinking something's got to happen something that I imagine has got to happen, you know, like I don't know what people imagine. They might imagine they're going to see lights or they're going to have bliss or they're going to float out of their body or whatever. But the thing is, is when you meditate, everything can and does happen. But that also includes just sitting there being bored. <laughs> That's as valid a meditation as mm-hmm. having great bliss. So, but if you go in with expectations about what meditation is because you've been reading stuff or been subjected to people's views and opinions, then yeah, it's going to put you off. So it's best to start to learn meditation with the, with the mind of a child, with no expectations, just looking in and investigating. And sometimes it's better just to do the very basic uh, techniques like watching the breath or being with the body rather than making meditation convoluted or something that doesn't fit into our culture. It doesn't matter what they do in the other cultures, that's part of theirs. But in Western culture, I think we have to keep it just simple because our minds are very ration, hyper-rational. And if we introduce too many bells and whistles and chants, mm. we just go, oh God, this is just, you know, new age stuff or whatever. So, um, right. and just thinking of your own experience, I mean, you had the experience of noticing that the anxiety or the panic started to dissipate. And so you've had mm. your own taste of what it can be. And that that's what has to happen for everyone. They have to have that taste of recognizing the shifts that can happen, but it may not happen straight away. They just got to keep, keep going more than 10 minutes too. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, 
So this is one of the paradoxes I noticed early about the kind of meditation I was doing, at least, which was in the Vipassana tradition. Mm. One of the paradoxes I noticed is that on the one hand, I was, on the one hand, I had a goal. My goal was to feel better than I felt, Mm. right? I felt this tight sense of anxiety all day that was very, very unpleasant. And it was actually making my life more difficult. It was hindering my goals. It was hindering my relationships. So I had this goal, which is feel better, get rid of this feeling, feel psychologically normal and happy, right? But on the other hand, when I tried to sit down and, and meditate with an aim in mind, nothing good would happen. And in fact, the only way I would achieve my goal is by just paying attention to my body with no goals. So it's, it's, it's this paradox where in order to get to the goal I wanted, I had to abandon goals in my mind completely successfully for long enough, including getting rid of the feeling, right? Getting rid of the feeling, wanting to get rid of the feeling, that's the first thing that won't that will prevent you from actually getting rid of the feeling. Well, what the paradox is I found eventually is that I had to totally accept the feeling, get married to the feeling, as if the feeling will be there with you, the, the bad feeling will be there with you every second for the rest of your life and become okay with that. And, but you have to really become okay with that. You can't just pretend to become okay with it so that it magically goes away. So I'm curious if, if this paradox is, if you think about that paradox in the same way that I do. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying and that's that is, you know, one way of working with anxiety or any unpleasant feeling is to notice it and accept it. But then the trick is that then if we think, well, I have to accept it, that becomes another goal, mm-hmm. accepting that I guess that's the paradox you're speaking of. But the first thing is to notice, okay, there's this unpleasant feeling, what does it feel like? Mm-hmm. And to look at the way the mind pushes it away, doesn't want it. Because, you know, in the Buddha's teaching, we're always swinging between these two of wanting or not wanting, of liking or not liking, craving and aversion. So, you know, that is the first step to notice that those two swings of the pendulum pushing and pulling. But what what you can do in terms of the feelings themselves is, you know, when the mind is calm enough, because if we're overwhelmed by anxiety, we can't do this, we can't go deeper. But if you get to a point where you've learned to, you said marry or just be with with unpleasantness, be with fear, there comes a point where you can really start to look deeper into, okay, well, what is the nature of this fear? What are these feelings? And when the mind in meditation becomes sufficiently calm and clear enough, you start to see, you know, and this we're talking about it now at a conceptual level, so it may not make that much sense to people. But when this is done in the context of meditation, when one, one's mind is still and open, and you look at the, the feeling of fear or panic and you investigate, like I was saying before, be like a child, what is it? What is this? And you start to see that actually, in essence, it actually doesn't exist. It's like a cloud in the sky it's, or a rainbow, you know. It gives the appearance of being something real or something that is mine, me or mine. And then what happens when we do think it's real or we do think it's who and what I am, then the grasping mind or the, the, the mind that wants to push it away, that, that's what the problem is. That comes to the fore and creates the, more of the panic you know, and we try to bury it or get rid of it. But when you start to really look at these things that we call feelings or emotions, they're actually completely substanceless. You know, they're like an apparition. So when something, when you see that in meditation, it's like, aha, it's like a real aha moment. It's like, my God, it's, there's nothing to this stuff. But we've been heavily conditioned and then we develop habitual patterns to believe that these are real, these thoughts and these feelings and these emotions. And then we react to them with liking or not liking, you know, wanting to get more of them or wanting to get away from them. But when, when it comes down to it, they're nothing. They're really empty phenomena. So that that's what's the liberating thing about meditation. You know, you're saying you, you wanted to feel better and that that's a valid thing to, to want in meditation. And most people perhaps go after it for that very reason, for stress management, relaxation. But it's so much more than that. It starts to, if you stick with it, it starts to unravel the very nature of the mind itself, the fabric of reality. And you see that these things that we call my body, my thoughts, my ideas, my emotions, they're actually, they're just flimsy. I sometimes say they're like fairy floss. And look, we've got science to back that up. People might think, well, what's she talking about? It sounds like, sounds like some new age thing. 
But, you know, science will say there's no substance to anything in the universe. It's all space. So when you experience that in meditation, it's very liberating because you're letting go, you're shedding these false ideas and perceptions about yourself as a solid thing who has all these problems and this personality and this life history and these emotions to recognizing that at our essence, we're just empty space. And I mentioned earlier that the, you know, when I was a child of eight or nine or whatever I was, my mind would automatically go into this space, empty space. And it was a little frightening, but my ego wasn't as well developed as it is now. So, you know, it's well, as an adult. So, you know, it was able to let go into that space and uh, just, it was what it was. So I don't know if that makes sense talking about it in an intellectual way, but it's kind of what it's pointing to. It makes sense to me mostly because I've had the first person experience that vindicates it. But if I hadn't, you know, if I rolled the clock back to when I was 16 or 17 and maybe I had done, like I said, some kind of unstructured playing around with hearing the thoughts in my head, but I certainly hadn't, I hadn't had an intentional moment of, of mindfulness or, you know, an extended period of mindfulness. And I didn't know the, what it felt like to pay close attention to, you know, sensory experience without getting distracted by a thought. I didn't know Mm. what it was like to have, you know, even three or five seconds of thought-free, you know, feeling of my body in in a boring moment because, you know, my thoughts were (laughs) racing all the time. Yeah, exactly. And that's what most 16, 17-year-olds are doing. You know, it's a very painful time. And most adults, Caught up in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But there's so much self-consciousness when we're that age too. Mm -hmm. It's all about me and what people think of me. It's quite Mm -hmm. painful time. And, And that's what drew me to searching, you know, as a way out too. that sort of that ongoing confusion that there's no hardly any space in your head to, Mm -hmm. to look. Yeah. So let me, let me ask you this, because I think when some people hear someone like you talk this way, what they might be thinking is, well, isn't it important to have a healthy sense of self or as my dad would put it, a healthy ego, or even if the word ego isn't right, you know, some kind of self-esteem, which requires a self. And all of the the sort of meditation and conceptual realizations that you are talking about having had through meditation all undermine this sense of self. Is that bad? Is that destabilizing? Well, it depends on, on how the person picks it up after that. And it can send some people right off the deep end, you know, if they're not, if they don't understand it, if they're not ready for it. But essentially, no, it, it, the idea that you recognize that there's these, uh, there is the relative world that we live in where we have personalities and we have to function in the world with a, an ego or a, you know, a sense of self. And, but I think through those experiences of recognizing that it is constructed, then we can let go, particularly of the unhealthy stuff, the stuff that really drives us to despair and causes a lot of suffering. But it's equally important not to start picking up some other new identity like, oh my God, I'm such a great meditator or I'm so spiritual because I've had these experiences because that's another ego. So you don't mm-hmm. take any of it seriously. But you know, we've, I've still got my personality. I can't get rid of it even if I wanted to. And those mm-hmm. things come up. But you know, with meditation and mindfulness, you, you learn not to take any of them seriously too seriously. And you don't know what's going to come up in your personality. I mean, a personality isn't fixed anyway. It's constantly changing from day to day, from year to year. I've got a different kind of sense of self now than I had five years ago, you know. So you start to see the fluidity of that. And But on the path of Dharma, you also try and develop a self that is wholesome, that is one that doesn't cause harm to others, one that's um, respectful and and, um, honest. So they're all parts of the construction that are still in play, but they're meant to be constructs of the personality that are skillful and helpful for yourself and for others. So you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, when you realize that there's no substance here. You keep it light and you play with it, but not in a silly way, you know, in a Uh skillful way. But that takes a lot of time to learn too because with meditation and going on the path, you go to extremes too. People fall into the extremes. I've done it myself and you learn from that and you come back to the middle path, you know. What kind of extremes are you 
talking about? Well, like going around saying, oh, there's no self, there's nothing Mm -hmm. here, I can do anything, so, you know, Mm -hmm. I can say what I like because there's no self there, so don't worry Mm -hmm. about it. So you lose sensitivity to the fact that there Mm -hmm. are other people and they do have feelings Mm -hmm. at that level, they do. So you don't go around thinking, well, there's no feelings, so don't worry, you know, go and get stuffed, I don't care what, what I say anymore, that sort of stuff. To recognizing we we still live in a relative world and um, there are more helpful ways to live in this world that don't cause harm, that's all. And a a bit more enlightening. Yeah, sorry, mm, go on. Yeah, a couple minutes ago you used the word dhamma which I think many of my listeners won't be familiar with. What are you talking about when you say dhamma? Yeah, sorry for using jargon. I mean, the the dharma is really, it's a Pali word. It's also Sanskrit, but it it has many layers of meaning, a bit like meditation. But in essence, it it means the truth, the reality of the way things are. So you you could say the dharma with a capital D is pointing to the truth of the the ultimate truth. But dharma also means all phenomena, everything in existence, are what's called dharmas. So when I say, you know, in the path of dharma, it's about trying to be on a path that, that aligns with truth rather than delusion, even though delusion is a dharma in itself too. It's part of the phenomenal world. Mm. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, it definitely makes sense to me. So I'm curious, do you have much interaction with the people that listen to your guided meditations, do they message you and, and do they tell you how your guided meditations are affecting them? And like, do you have a sense of your audience and what, how they're experiencing you? Yeah, I do. And that's what is motivated me to keep going with this strange YouTube thing. Because when I first put stuff up about two or three years ago, I just thought there might be a few other you know, seasoned practitioners who would listen. But it actually snowballed from there and the audience is extremely wide and varied now. And I do get a lot of feedback that these things are really helping people and and transforming their lives. And that's both in the comments threads or through emails or we also have started offering a fortnightly guided med- you know live stream thing on YouTube and um, you know the apart from my own guided meditations I read the wisdom of the masters which is actually the main focus of that channel and I read them in a way that they're you know slow so and meditative so people can really allow the meaning to go in and uh, you know these teachings these texts that I read or even quotes, they're extremely powerful. They're coming from a lot through translation, but it still doesn't matter from the the words of enlightened masters. So people listen to them in that receptive state in meditation and they're quite mind-blowing for a lot of people. You know, they're really taking their practice to a whole nother level, but that's not everyone. It really depends on Mm. where you're at and how you respond to it. But yeah, the, the feedback's been really positive, really quite surprising. Yeah, that's great. So you you mentioned earlier that the experience of boredom while meditating is just as valid as any other. But I know, you know, I think when for many people who try meditation out, say one time or two times, it's precisely the experience of boredom that tells them they're doing something wrong and that nothing is happening, right? It's the boredom that that sends them a signal that they must be doing it wrong or, or meditation just must not be for them because there's no way 50 people would be gathering in this meditation hall feeling as bored <laughs> as I am and then keep coming back for more punishment. So what would you say to a person who's tried it out once, just been bored and figured their <laughs> boredom must mean meditation is not for them? Well, I think that's really a symptom of our current society is that we want things to happen now, immediately, quickly. And we're not prepared to kind of wait or be patient. And, uh, you know, within these teachings that what's said to be the highest virtue, the thing that's going to actually take you fastest on the path and deepest on the path is patience. It's considered the highest virtue. So first I would say if you can develop patience with your boredom, then you're doing right, you know. So what I was saying is, uh, you know, if you sit to meditate and see one thing is boredom is to actually realize that that's your best teacher in that moment is to look at the mind that says, I don't want this, I want it to be some other way. Or like I said earlier, the mind that goes into meditation expecting something, wanting something, and when it's not there we get frustrated or we get bored. But the boredom is actually such a powerful teacher to look into. It's like you start to see that this is the nature of the mind. 
It's the, the liking, the disliking, the wanting to get away from, rather than look into the boredom and this even to question who's bored. You know, who, who's this person that, that you think you are that's bored and what does boredom feel like? There's so much you can use with that. It's like it's one of the best things to get in meditation, you know, and if you can use it skillfully and, and perhaps, you know, if you get the right teacher that can teach you how to, to deal with those what seems like very mundane states, you can learn so much. And recognising that patience is the highest virtue on this path and that we're constantly wanting quick things to happen. And we want instant results. And that's not going to happen with meditation. It might happen for some rare people, but that doesn't come out of thin air. That comes from, you know, other causes can, causes and conditions from the past. But generally we have to be patient, really patient. Otherwise we're just going to keep getting trapped in, um, in suffering. Yeah. One thing I've noticed through meditation is that it can actually, it can lead you to question whether certain emotions are what you thought they were. And you talked about this mm-hmm. a little earlier in the conversation, but boredom is is one that, you know, I remember having been on meditation retreats and questioning actually whether boredom was a separate emotion from anxiety. And what seemed to me, you know, when you're on a silent med- meditation retreat, at least the few that I've done, you you don't talk all day and you alternate between doing a sitting meditation and a walking meditation for, you know, 16 or 14 hours a day plus mm-hmm. meals and, and you eat in silence. And it's literally the most boring possible environment <laughs> that could ever be constructed. But I found when my mindfulness which is to say my ability to pay attention to my sensory experiences, like to the feeling of my butt in the chair or the, the sound of the birds outside. When my mindfulness was strong, boredom wasn't really possible in the sense that what I'm actually feeling when I'm you know, waiting in a doctor's office with nothing to do and my phone's out of battery so I can't scroll through Instagram, that moment of waiting, it's not that nothing is happening and that's inherently unpleasant. It's that I have some kind of anxiety that I can't, I can no longer distract myself from because I have no easy source of distraction. So it's not the lack of distraction inherently that is unpleasant. It's the underlying anxiety that your distraction is always keeping at bay. That's what's unpleasant. And if you're in a a setting where you're actually dealing with that underlying anxiety, then boredom is, is not really possible. That that's kind Absolutely. of what I found. Boredom is not distinct from anxiety. It's just anxiety with without distraction. Yeah, great insight. Exactly. It's so true. It's like this idea that people get very agitated when there's nothing to do, and like you said, when there's nothing to look at to distract ourselves. And so mm-hmm. there, there's there's the great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Oh wow, this yeah, boredom is superficial. It's the surface. If, if you stay with that just a little bit longer, like it sounds like you did on that retreat, you've peeled back one layer of the onion and recognized the anxiety there. And that's great. And then you stay with the anxiety and mm. you look at the anxiety. And like I said before, you get to a point when you realize there's not really that much, there's nothing to this anxiety. It's just these feelings that are, mm. they feel like this, but they come and go, they don't last. They're not me, essentially who I am, and they're all dependent on certain causes and conditions, normally certain mind states, mental states or thoughts. So it can be quite, and that's far from boring when you start looking at that and start understanding the layers of the mind. It's the same with anger. People think that anger is the true thing, but when you start you know, peeling back anger, you get to deep sadness and deep depression. So everything is not what it appears mm-hmm. to be. That's what I'd say with if someone's stuck thinking it's boring, it's like, well, investigate the boredom. It won't stay. You'll find that you'll go deeper right. into it. And then when you go deep into these things and start seeing them for what they are and what happens when you see things for what they are is that they don't have power over you anymore and they automatically dissipate or dissolve. And so when those things start to dissolve in meditation, that's why peace comes up naturally because we're not pushing or pulling or clinging to stuff and we're not fooled by it anymore. And when we're not fooled by all these thoughts and feelings and emotions, we just stay with the natural state, which is which is quiet and peaceful. Or, you know, that's, that is our natural state, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. But when we're moving about at a million miles an hour, wanting things quick, 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 I want things to happen, it's impossible to see that. It's impossible to experience the natural state of the of the mind, which is peaceful. So I think a major thrust of Buddhism, 
um, as I understand it, and, and that I think is relatable to anyone who's been a human being for any length of time, is that <laughs> satisfying your desires, whatever they are, it never quite quenches your desires as much as you thought it would or for as long as you thought it would. And the things we spend all day chasing, whether it's money, status, fame, sex, or, or any other, anything else that's pleasurable, the moment you get it, if you pay attention to how you feel, almost invariably you find that it actually doesn't feel as good as you thought it would feel when you were chasing it. Or the come down from the high of the feeling is so bad that it pretty much ruins whatever good feeling you had. And it seems to me that that insight, how we are almost like we seem just by our natural settings to be chasing something we don't deeply want when we get it and and yet just you know waking up and doing the same thing over and over again it seems like that's the insight that drives a lot of people to meditation and and that's the insight that meditation at its best is meant to to help you live out. So can you speak a little bit about how you think about pleasure and cravings and satisfying cravings and their relationship to meditation? Yeah, well, <clears throat> this this notion of craving is really the core of the, the Buddha's teaching. And a bit like I said before about the other things, there's one layer of kind of recognizing desires, as you said, and that they don't bring lasting satisfaction. But as you go deeper and deeper into understanding what the Buddha meant by this word craving, that is the depths of the path. It's very hard to speak about to people who don't, A, have a practice or don't even have an intellectual understanding of this notion of craving at, at, at its deepest level. But I'll speak about it and people didn't just take it or leave it, you know, you don't have to accept what I say here. But craving is really ignorance, really. Ignorance of the way things are leads to uh, these things that we call, we'll call them mental fabrications. So we start to, because of ignorance, create a sense of a self through what's called sankharas. And there's a whole chain to this, I won't go into it, but this notion of craving comes out of craving for not just pleasant things. Sometimes we can be crave for not to be for the end of existence, you know. So, and but it's this notion of craving which comes out of a sense of self that we believe that there is a a me here, a a solid, permanent self which has to get something pleasant for itself constantly, or when things aren't pleasant, that self wants to get away from it. So craving is both entails both um, liking and not liking or aversion as well. And it's this notion of craving that's said to keep us bound to this wheel of samsara, this cyclic wheel of existence. And until we wake up to that at the deepest level, we'll be caught in this delusion of a self that keeps dying and getting reborn, not just in what you know, what you could say in each future or past life, but in this very moment, it's the craving, the cycle of craving that keeps us bound to this notion of a self. So, you, you know, you've seen, had some insights into that, it sounds like already, about what desire does, how it doesn't last. But then when we satisfy one desire, next one comes up. We have to keep feeding, it's like feeding the monster of this self that's constantly wanting something or not wanting something. Same thing, really. And so when you stop in meditation and you start looking at that very process of craving, and you said before, just even being bored, there's craving in that. There's wanting to get away from something. It's uh, anxiety provoking. But if you're willing to stick with it and look at it, you start to really peel back many, many, many layers of the onion to look at how this self view gets constructed every moment. And the desire is what keeps, we're living in a desire realm. And that's what keeps this delusion of a self alive, you know, and it's, so it's a very profound teaching. Mm. And if people are interested, I just encourage them to go and investigate more into the, the Buddha's teachings, but it's not just in Buddhist teachings. It's in a lot of spiritual teachings and most of the major teachings will talk about understanding the nature of the mind and the way that desire keeps us bound to this cyclic existence. 
Yeah. But I'll just say one more thing because I'm hearing people's objections to that in my mind as I say it. Like you said, oh, doesn't it? Well, what happens to the self? You know, we need a self. It doesn't mean that when we uproot desire or see through desire that we become these kind of vegetables who, you know, people people who don't want anything anymore. It's not, that's not the case at all. We become a little less clingy to things or fooled by things, but you know, you still like, I don't know, a nice meal, but you don't, it doesn't define who you are and you don't get upset if the meal isn't beautiful or you're not always thinking obsessively about the next meal or whatever pleasurable thing. Mm -hmm. You start to see through the the illusion of pleasure. And so, you know, it's often talked about when you understand desire, it's like a bee on a flower that just touches the honey and it flies off again. It's very light, you know, rather than obsessive or deranged or causing a lot of stress. It's just light. The desires are light and we don't cling to them. That's what it really comes down to, not clinging to these desires. It doesn't mean that we don't enjoy things or, you know, like to go for a lovely walk in nature or whatever. It's just it's a much lighter relationship to desires. Right. So this is a what you just said brought out a worry that many people have about meditation, mm. which is that if I meditate, if I meditate and I get into this line of questioning the self, of ridding myself of, of cravings or attachment to cravings or attachment ultimately to, to anything, aren't I just going to become this almost inhuman, zombified, like monk with no attachment to my friends and my family, no ability to have a normal romantic relationship, no ability to or desire to go out and have fun and drink with friends and socialize and like do all of the, you know, pro-social and, and good typical sort of life things that people do. What do you say to someone that worries that going too far down this path leads to some kind of colorless existence? Well, I just first question where they got that idea from. I mean, do they actually know people who are like that? And if they do, then those people, if they're really kind of cold and indifferent to the world, then they're not really practicing properly. But I think we conjure up a lot of images and ideas and expectations about this. And if you've met any of the great masters or met a really good teacher or practitioner, they're not like that at all. I just talk about my own teacher in this tradition, Ajahn Chah, which some of your listeners may be aware of. I never met him. He he died before I met him. But by all accounts, he was uh, an enlightened teacher and he was funny and cheeky and, you know, would poke fun in a way of trying to get people to wake up. He was anything but staid and boring and, uh, you know, he kept the monk's life impeccably, but he, he would never be described as someone who was kind of dead to the world. And he's, you know, he was constantly just giving, giving, giving these teachings and helping people. And you know, he's a great example of the, and he was just full of joy, apparently. People just loved being around him. And if that's a, a model for someone who's awakened, he was anything but cut off or dead to the world. So I think just, just look at where these ideas are coming from, because I think a lot of the times we just put obstacles in our way sometimes as an excuse. And uh, I would just say, try it out and see what happens. You know, you might start to lose interest in as certain aspects of the world. Mm -hmm. and that, but that's okay, because there's certain aspects of the world that aren't worth having much interest in in my opinion, you know, mm. but everyone's different. You know, some people will become more engaged in the world for, you know, really wholesome means and others might become a bit more reclusive. But we also might do that at different times of our lives and practice as well. But it's not worth putting that fear in your way or as an excuse to, to kind of investigate your own mind because why else are we here? Mm -hmm. You know, what's the point of life if we don't understand it at its deepest level? I mean, if people just want to live at the surface superficially, that's fine. Most people do and see what happens and we only have to look at what's happening now. You have to look very far to see the mental health problems, the anxieties, the conflicts. You know, it's not really working, is it, for most yeah. people on the planet? No. So, yeah, and that's why people are looking for deeper answers. So you're not yeah. going to lose anything, I'd say. Right. You're going to gain so much more. So I also you used a phrase just now or a word just now, awakened or enlightened to, to describe the teacher, which opens a question of what you mean by that. 
Right. Is it when you say he's enlightened, does that mean this person has spent so much time meditating in the right way such that they don't experience attachment to emotions or suffering or cravings in the way us normal people do? Or what do you mean by that that word? I think just simply, because I don't really want to go into trying to define what enlightenment is. It's it's just that's just getting into kind of a whole nother realm. But for, for someone like Ajahn Chah, he wasn't fooled by any of these appearances anymore. Mm-hmm. So it didn't mean that things, he might not have felt annoyed with someone, but he didn't buy into it. He didn't believe anything that arose in his mind-body experience as mm-hmm. being him and mm-hmm. who and what he is. So in that sense, he didn't suffer because he was awakened to, I guess you're kind of awakened to the delusions. Mm-hmm. That's what it really means. You see through what um, once you didn't see through. You have the awareness to understand that these are just appearances arising and ceasing every moment. And it's when we cling to these appearances, that's when we suffer. So he didn't suffer anymore because he didn't, A, he wasn't fooled. And when you're not fooled, you don't cling or push away. And so, you know, as I said, before he was he was able just to say stay abiding in his natural state of spaciousness mm. yeah so i think there's there's a continuum between someone that's never meditated never never been curious about the interior of their own mind who's just trying to satisfy cravings every day in the normal human way on the one hand and someone like this teacher on the other hand that has so successfully intervened in his own mental habits that he really can't suffer the way a normal person tends to. Between that, there's this vast space. And I've spent some time meditating and I can feel that I'm very, very close to the person that has never meditated ever. On that continuum, I'm very close in terms of my reactivity from day to day as if I had never meditated at all. But what I found is that even the small amount of skill that I do have at feeling my body when I have a difficult emotion, just that little skill you know, the difference between having none of it and having a little of it is huge. And um, just being able to take the edge off of, I mean, I think this is what I would, part of what I would say to someone that was worried about becoming someone unrecognizable. What I would say is it's, mindfulness is not an all or nothing skill. It's a skill that gives you as much as you give to it. And it is like exercise in that way. Like if you, it's like if you jog every day or, or you lift weights every day, you, you shouldn't worry that you're going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger in a year. You're not. You're just going to get a little more muscle definition and you'll make a bit of progress. And maybe that's a good thing. At, le- at least that's how I view it. So I'm curious like, how you view the continuum between you know having no skills in this domain to someone who is a true master like you just des- described and to the rest of us who are you know somewhere in between and so what are you actually asking what do you want to know about that so i guess do you encounter people or or have you yourself ever had a, a kind of goal of where you want to be on this continuum of mindfulness mm. skill or, mm, or, or okay. had a goal of trying to get more skilled along that continuum towards mastery. Mm, okay. Yeah. I see where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we continue, and, you know, for someone like Ajahn Chah who had gone all the way, there's the realization that there is no goal and there's no one to achieve anything. And as we go along this path, what we're trying to do is shed the notion that there is someone here who's trying to get anything. Now, that may sound just like nonsense to people, but this is what it really means. It's shedding through the delusion. There's a self, you know, a fixed self here who's setting out to attain something. So the freedom comes from realizing that that very goal seeking in meditation or even measuring yourself, here I'm on this, I'm on this part of the continuum, or maybe today I'm that part, I'll never be on that part. That's all the delusion that there's some self here who's got some some goal to achieve. And I guess having said that, there's also a bit of a paradox too because there are stages of development and insight, but ultimately if we're, if we're constantly thinking that we're trying to achieve something or get something and, and measuring ourselves from where we are, we're still very much caught in the delusion that we're trying to get out of. So what Ajahn Chah used to say is that um, don't be an arahant, don't be a bodhisattva, don't be 
you know, a skilled meditator. Don't be anything at all. We let go of any notions of who and what we are. So he didn't walk about around thinking he was an arahant. He never said he was an arahant. People said he was an arahant because they, who know, you know certain people would have recognised it. But he didn't have this concept in his mind that I'm an arahant. The thing is, the arahant knows that there's no arahant. <laughs> and that's what gives them freedom from the delusion of a self and a path and an attainment and a goal because we're we're in a society that's just goal orientated because there's always a me wanting to get something even out of meditation we want to get something out of meditation but that's the very thing we've got to see through in meditation and uproot this me who's trying to even get peace if we're trying to get peace we're not going to get peace we just have to realize our natural state is peace and that comes through letting go of these ideas that mm. there is a me here getting something at all. So we mm. just let go of all that because they're all just concepts in the mind and conditioning. That's all they are. So we have to look at what are these things that come up in the mind about goals and where we're at. They're just thoughts and ideas, more of the same. Okay. So my last question is about the difference between this Western, or I guess I should say just monotheistic traditional religions and and Buddhism. So if you just, obviously there are many differences between Judaism, Christianity, and, and Islam, but they all have this general structure of being about the fact that there's one God who created the world and who you have to develop the right relationship to. You, you have to believe the correct things about this God. You have to, you know, make sure you're worshiping the correct prophet or messenger or and calling that person by the right name or else in at least in Christianity and Islam there's there's a hell and the structure of those god of those religions and even the structure of polyist, polytheistic religions they all seem centered around an entity that you have to worship you ought to worship now maybe that entity is a metaphor for something maybe it's but in, in general the way most people have practiced it it's about that structure. And Buddhism it just has a totally different structure and, and feel to it. If you, you know, some people don't even call it a religion necessarily, but it seems like it's playing a fundamentally different game than the traditional monotheistic religions. And the insights into craving, so, so like for, for instance, in traditional monotheisms, usually the attitude towards craving and desire is just, it's all bad. Don't never, never partake in any desire, it's sin, it's evil, without actually giving you a roadmap about how to deal with the inevitable cravings that you will have. Whereas the Buddhist perspective is, here's a roadmap of how to practice dealing with your, your desires. I'm curious, the whole point of this windup is just to, to ask you, how do you view traditional monotheistic religions as they relate to Buddhist teachings? Do you have people that, that are able to link the two that message you or do, do you link them? Do you view them as all teaching the same message or do you think Buddhism is really distinct and special among the religions? Well, having been brought up Catholic, I totally understand what you're saying. And that's why I was drawn to Buddhism because it, it is it does offer a very clear roadmap and it's very practical and very rational. But having come back to visit teachings of the Christian mystics in particular as part of my channel and part of my study, all the other monotheistic religions, I realize it's just, you know, those things you talked about. It's just people misunderstanding the essence of the teaching and that happens in Buddhism too. Don't, don't think that Buddhism gets off the hook. There's a lot of Buddhists who just do the rites and rituals. They don't practice. They don't investigate their mind. They're, they're full of superstitions. They just go to the temples to get merit. And it's, it becomes just another rite and ritual like in any religion. But the, you know, if you listen to the Christian mystics on my channel, like Meister Eckhart and St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, their understanding of what God is is very different from this theistic guy in the sky that we have to pray to like, or, or afraid of. It's nothing like that. So they've gone a lot deeper into their own practice and understanding what that is and have shared. And, you know, they were a lot of them were excommunicated or because they spoke out and they saw the truth and that they went beyond these superstitions and 
you know, religious dogmas to understanding the nature of reality. And I guess I include a lot of those wisdom teaching texts and mystics on my channel because if you listen deeply, you realize that the essence of their message doesn't differ from what any of the other great masters are saying, Buddhist or, you know, Vedanta or whatnot. And that can just be really freeing. If we get caught in concepts and religious dogma, it's just a minefield, isn't it? And mm. But if you can make, if you, if so, I'm not saying that people shouldn't practice Christianity, but if you can make your way through all that stuff and find the essence of what Jesus was pointing to, it's going to be a lot more freeing than just getting caught in scriptures and dogma. It's, it's the same in Buddhism. Mm. You have to, oh, you have to find your way through that as well. Okay, seminary. This has been um, a very good conversation. I hope people are moved to try meditation if they haven't. And if you're like me and you're, you're, you're an off and on meditator, I hope you are uh, inspired to get back on the horse. <laughs> and before I let you go, can you just mm. point my listeners in the direction of your YouTube page? I don't know if you have a website or a Twitter handle or anything like that, but wherever you want them to encounter uh, your work. Yeah, there's a, I mean, if you just put in my name, I think because it's the only name on YouTube, you'll happen upon the channel. And uh, we also have a website where we put up resources as well, and that's um, Viveka Hermitage, V-I-V-E-K-A Hermitage.com, and that that has all the links to the YouTube. But I don't do any other social media or anything like that. But um, given my name is kind of unusual, just put it in YouTube, and it, it's a big library. It's full of stuff. So, uh, yeah, people are certainly welcome and encouraged if they're interested, only if they're interested, though, to, um, to listen to some of the teachings and the guided meditations and see how they are, just try them out, really. Okay. And I'm glad that they've been helpful for you too, Coleman. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's good absolutely. To, to hear that. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. And uh, maybe I'll have you back on one day and we'll uh, keep the conversation going. Sure thing. Yeah, all the best to you. If you appreciate the work I do, you can support me by subscribing directly to my website, colemanhughes.org, and sharing this episode with friends and family. As always, thank you for your support.